I want to add my voice to the happy Father's Days, to the Father's Days in the room today, and hope that you are having a great one. Uh, you know, the topic uh, of, on Father's Day kind of hits people differently, and I realized that. I know that there was uh, one person a number of years ago who literally said, I hate going to church on Father's Day. He said, Go on, come on, Mother's Day, the Mother's Day, the mothers get all the praise, and you're so wonderful, we can't live without you, all that kind of stuff. On Father's Day, the fathers get raked over the coals and told everything that they're doing wrong and they need to do it better. So it's not my goal to kind of create that kind of, uh, of uh, the emotional response in you. But the topic that we're talking about today, though it's not on parenting, it's not the fathers, it certainly can tie to parenting and can tie to fathers. We're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about stress and how stresses of life kind of tear us down and beat us down. And isn't it incredible that the, the, the primary sources of joy in life at the same time, the primary sources of stress in life can be those that we love the most. It can be in parenting. It can be in trying to raise that next generation and getting them headed in the right direction. So I want you to think about it. It's way beyond parenting. It could be money. It could be career. It could be you all just made a move to northwest Arkansas or you're moving from this place of paradise and you're moving somewhere else, wherever the case may be. You know, you're just, you might be feeling some stress right now. There's a lot of, there's, there's too much month left at the end of the page check or there's, there's just, there's too many demands or too much pulling at you. So here's what I want you to do in your own head, in your own heart. I want you to assess what is your stress level. Okay. Put it on a meter. Okay. There's a meter in your notes. If you got grab notes on your way in, but there, here it is up on the screen. Think about it in the negative, negative 10. That means you're as cool as a cucumber. You could be sipping pina coladas on the beach right now, and you are feeling good. You know, by the way, on that whole beach thing, don't you hate it when your friends right now that are on the beach are posting photos of their feet in the sand? I was like, I just want to defriend you for the week while you post all these photos. Now, that's an envy problem. I know that we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, but uh, as you're thinking about uh, that non-stressful kind of image in your mind, think about that. Now, that's you. If you're in the negative 10, negative a, I mean, you mean you're like not even on the on the scale. That's great. Now, you know, as I know, you will not always stay there, and that will change. Uh, but maybe you're more in the red zone. Now, in the red zone is no laughing matter. In the red zone, you stay in the red zone too long, you will overheat. You will burn up. Your engine will freeze up. You will not make it. I like a good challenge. Now, you might think of yourself, am I challenged? Am I overly challenged? Now, that's a good thing to be overly challenged, okay? Dangerously challenged is not a good thing. Now, let me distinguish between the two. If you're just challenged, it's something that you can do yourself, okay? You just grit and grind it out and you can do it. If you're overly challenged and you're kind of above that challenged area, that's where you have to rely on God. That's where you have to turn to Him in prayer. That's whenever you can't do it yourself, and it's actually a good thing to be overly challenged. But if you are in dangerous, challenged zone, that's not good. You don't need to stay there forever. You, don't, you need to get there and get out. People that are overly challenged, people that are in the red, people that are burning like that, they're the ones who don't turn to God in prayer. They're the ones who careen off the road. They're the ones who make 
bad decisions. They're the ones who are tapped out and they don't know it and they blow up and they do things that they shouldn't do and they say things that they regret later and they say it to people that they love dearly and all that kind of stuff. The red zone don't stay there very long. You've got to get out of it. And you think about this whenever it says in Proverbs 12, 25, that's a person in the red zone. An anxious heart weighs a man down. A person who's carrying anxiety like a heavy weight, carrying worry like a heavy weight, carrying those concerns of this world that sometimes you have no control over. Now, sometimes you do. A lot of things that we do in our culture, when we talk about those, are self-induced. We bring it on ourselves. okay? Uh, in fact, uh, uh, social science have, have said that we are living in the most worried culture that has ever lived. Now, think about that. We have more technology, more development, more uh, more ex- accessibility in our in, in, in the Western world to medical uh, knowledge and understanding, but yet we are the most unhealthy, worried generation ever. That, that just blows my mind. And literally, they're they're studying, and you might have saw the sixty minutes special, not too our sixty minutes uh, doc, documentary, not too long ago, and talked about how our smartphones, our gadgets, are actually increasing the stress in our life and not decreasing the stress in our life. So you can talk about all these things that we are bringing on ourselves, that we are buying, that we're we're taking in. Time Magazine quotes Dr. Joel Ike Elks, uh, something like that, University of Louisville or Louisville, whoever you're from. Uh, our mode of life itself, the way we live is emerging as today's principal cause of illness. The way we are choosing to live is the principal cause of illness. So there are self-induced anxiety. Now that we've got to stop. We've got to figure it out. We've got to back out of that. Okay. But then there is that that just comes upon us. It's thrust upon us. It's, one, it's whenever you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you that report that you had no clue. It's whenever you go into the job and you've been loyal for the past 20, 25 years and all of a sudden they're not loyal to you. All of a sudden everything in your life is just turned upside down and you've been, you've been doing what's right. You think you've been doing God's will and you think you've been, everything's in order and why isn't God blessing and the stress is just, just overwhelming you. And what do you do with that? What do you do with the anxieties of our life? Now, again, just a snapshot into American history. What did we do as Americans when 9-11 happened? Well, you, a study that was done by Gallup Poll not long after that is 70% of Americans said they cried. Uh, 71% said they felt depressed. I mean, our security, our everything that we knew about, everything that we believed in, we thought, no, not on American soil. That happens over there. That happens in other countries. That didn't happen here. It happened here. And everything that we knew, the stock market crashes, everything begins to crumble in a matter of one day, in a matter of a couple of hours. Everything is turned upside down. How did America respond? We also prayed. Now, that's what I want you to key in on. There are right responses to stresses of life. And we're going to talk about how do we handle the anxiety, the stresses, whether we are bringing them on ourselves or they're handed to us or they're dealt our way. Because here's what happens. When stresses come, the natural, our default across this room, I'm going to stick my neck out and say everyone in this room, no one is excluded from this, our default will be to worry. 
will be to be anxious. When we get all tired, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to fit? And what are we going to do? And who's going to be our provider? And who's going to be our employer? And, and, and we just kind of get lost in it all. This is not new to humanity, okay? This, is, this may be some of the self-induced in our culture today, but it has been true of humanity. If you go just to the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, don't turn there now, just make note of it. You might go and read it this next week. Start in chapter 5, read chapter 6, read chapter 7. Notice the very end of chapter 7, how uh, good life is built and how we build our life on it. But if you get right in the middle of it, chapter 6, you'll find that six different times Jesus refers to worry and anxiety and fretting. Right in the middle, in the heart of the message, he's going to bring his disciples along. They're climbing the mountain together. Guys, stop worrying. You're worrying too much. You're fretting too much. You're consumed too much with life. Six different times, four of those times, he's telling his listeners not to worry. They're worrying over physical looks. They're worrying over clothing. They're worrying over food and drink. They're worried over their future. You can read those in verse 24, or excuse me, verse 27, verse 28, verse 31, and verse 34. We're worried. We worry. We worry. And if we don't worry, we're worried about what we're not worried about. We're worried about what we don't know. And the anxiety that just comes up on us, it's unrelenting and sometimes unforgiving. Sometimes, again, we can identify the sources. Take your Bible and look at the book of Philippians. It's where we've been for several months since Easter. We're going to finish it up next week and finish out Philippians. Just four chapters, but it's taken us since Easter to get to this point. But we want to look at the, the problem that Paul was talking about from the very beginning. He's been talking about there's this division. He's been talking about there's this problem. And he never names names until chapter 4. I don't know if it was a Freudian slip. I don't know what happened. But he decides to call him out on it. Just in case you are, you're not thinking, well, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. No, no, no. Let me just tell you who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Udia and Syntyche. All right? This is who he mentions there in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, I entreat, and he calls them by name, Udia, and I entreat Syntyche uh, to agree in the Lord. That's a fancy way to say, stop fighting. Realize that the Lord is a unifying factor, not a divisive factor. Whatever, we don't know what the argument was, but it was dividing the church of Philippi, just like it can be one thing in the home dividing your family. It can be one thing on the jo- job that can literally stop the, 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 the forward motion of, an, uh, 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 of, a, uh, of a company. You all have seen them. You've seen toxic people uh, on the job. And what will happen is an entire movement, all of a sudden, we're instead of forward progress, we're spending all of our time in sideways energy. We're not spending energy moving the ball down the field, selling the products, but we've got this sideways energy thing going on, and it's just consuming everything about us. It's never a good thing. So he calls them out. And then in verse 3 and 4, I'm giving you a lot of context because it's real important to understand this as we get into it. So in verse verse 3, he now turns and talks to somebody else that we don't know. Yes, I ask you, who's you, also true companion. Now, he's calling somebody out. Who's he calling out? We don't know. We don't know who he's calling out. You know, some people say maybe it's Lydia, the first believer in, in Philippi. Maybe it's that, uh, the Philippian jailer who becomes a believer. Maybe it's Clement later on. Maybe it's Epaphroditus. Whoever is the recipient of this letter, he's, he's saying, hey, I'm calling you out. 
And I'm needing your help. What am I needing your help to do? To help these women. <laughs> to come along beside them. This word help is used 16 times in the Greek language in, in the New Testament. And it's, it, it means to come along beside and to be a part of the solution. To come and step in and be a part of the solution. Now you and I all know when we start sticking our nose in somebody else's business, whether or not we're there to be nosy or we're there to be a part of the solution. Now, we may not look at ourselves that way, but we need to look at ourselves that way. Am I here? Am I asking questions to be a part of the solution or am I? Basically, he's calling for mediation because evidently, Syntyche and Yudia can't work it out themselves. But they're needing some help. They're needing a counselor. They're needing some intervention. They're needing something. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. By the way, remember back in the very first chapter we talked about, or back in Acts chapter 16 on Easter Sunday when we talked about how Paul was called to Philippi to preach the gospel and how he talks about in chapter 1 how it's a partnership in the gospel. See, it all comes back to the gospel. But what happened now is they were once, Syndicate and Judea, they were once partners in the gospel, but now they're no longer being able to be partners because they've got all this sideways energy going on. Labor side beside me in the gospel together with Clement. Who's Clement? We don't know who Clement is. Could have been the third bishop of Rome. Some have speculated, but we don't know. The rest of my fellow workers, the church in Philippi had grown enough. And then he says, whose names are in the book of life. We'll come to that in a moment. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, I do not want to skip over that phrase, whose names are in the book of life. Those fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, why do I pause on this? Because it's the only time in Philippians that this phrase, this reference to this book in some library out there, this book of life is mentioned. In fact, if you study the New Testament, there's only four times that it's used, five times it's used, four verses that it's used in. All the other verses are found in the book of Revelation. Then it refers to this book of life. What is this book of life? Until you come to Philippians. We've got to understand what this book of life is before we go further, right? Okay, I, I'm glad you asked. What is the book of life that all these fellow workers, that, that, that all these believers at, 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 at Philippi are a part of? Let's read from Revelation to kind of get a perspective of it. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. This is what it, it says there. It says, All who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been, negative, written before the foundations of the world. In the book of life, there's the book of life, of the Lamb was, who was slain. So he's going to talk about some people and their names are not in the book of life. Paul just talked about some people's names who are in the book of life. What's the difference? Probably a pretty important thing if it's in the book of Revelation that your name's in the book of life. I want to point out some other thing, one other very important element here. Notice that it was written, the names were written in the book of life before the foundations of the earth. That means that this book, this mysterious book that's written up, up in the heavens somewhere, wherever it is, it was written and it was written in, the names were written in before the foundations of the earth. Whoa, Mike, what are we here now? Did God all of a sudden write people's names down? Some people's names he didn't? Yes. 
Because you know what? God knows it all from the beginning to the end. He knows our end before he, well, he knows our end as much as he knows our beginning. He knows our yesterday as much as he knows our tomorrow. He knows when our life will end. He knows what we will do on the Sunday or the Monday or the Tuesday or the whatever. The day is that we have the opportunity to hear about Jesus and whether or not we're going to say yes or no to Jesus. He already knows how the story is going to end. And there will be some people's names that will not be read on that final day to be included forever and ever and ever in eternity. Because here's the reality. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He's never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He knows the end as much as he knows the beginning. So now did I say, that he predetermined that you're going to heaven and you're not, not at all. Let me read another verse to you. Whenever this book is read, it's in the very last part of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 27, it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Not anyone, people, not anything unclean, not any people who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this book is a pretty important book. And those whose names are written in the book of life, God knew it from the beginning of time. And yes, those who are not written in the book of life, there will be a line of distinction in eternity, and that will not be a pleasant line of distinction. You think, like, hey, Mike, how do I know? And that's my question to you. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's something you've got to wrestle down. That's something you've got to work on. But here's one thing I can tell you based on the authority of Scripture, that if you call on the name of the Lord, in no way will you be rejected by God. That as many as received him in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I know this, though I may not understand it all, I understand this, that I'm living in time and I'm living in, in space right now and God is above time and space and he can see the beginning and the end as clearly as anything and God is aware of how it's all going to work out in the end. That's how big our God is and that should bring faith and not discouragement to us. But what i got to figure out is where am I in the story of God? And I pray to God that if you have never received Christ, decided to say, hey, God, I am not going to be God anymore in my life. I'm going to walk with you. I would pray today that you would say yes to Jesus. And you would be assured. I don't know. I can't. You would be assured. You would be assured. First John chapter 5, verse 13, write that down in your margins, that you would be assured that you have hope of eternal life. It's not a think so. It's not a maybe so. It's a no so. To those, these things I've written unto you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a think so. You can know. That's free today, okay? Has nothing to do with attitude. Actually, it does. Because immediately following that, he says this, and again, I say rejoice. That's the whole, th- that's the whole theme. So here's where the two tie together. There is a difference in a person's life 
There is a factor. Call it the X factor. Call it a Y factor. Whatever you want to call it. There is a factor inside of my life as a believer and a child of God with my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life as a child of God. There is a factor in my life that a person without God, whose name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, without God does not have. And this is this factor, God factor. When God's a part of my life, when Jesus is a part of my life, when I have been born again, as the scripture refers to it, then all of a sudden I'm able to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. So now let's pick up in verse four and following. This is what he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, circle that phrase, which surpasses all understanding. I can't explain it. I can't tell you the ingredients of it. I can't tell you the formula behind it. It surpasses all understanding, all chemistry labs, everything. I cannot explain it. Will guard your hearts, circle the word hearts, and your mind, circle the word minds, in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whether... It's true, whatever is true and honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable. And if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, notice all these positive things he's saying. Think on these things. Verse 9. And what you've learned and what you've received and what you've heard and what you've seen in me practice these things and the god of peace circle that phrase we just circled peace of god now we're going to circle god of peace will be with you i want to propose to you today that there is a factor that this world does not have and this world cannot offer that will enable you to handle the stresses and the anxiety and the fears and the worries of life that may be thrust upon you or that you may bring on yourself, that you will have something inside of you, a part of you, about you, that you will be able to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You will be able to do that if there is this critical factor of a God relationship. Again, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That is absolutely critical to the entire passage. Let's talk about these elements, if you will, these essentials, if you will. The first one is the presence of God enables us to dance. We're talking about stressing less, dancing more. Having joy in our feet and our life and our in, 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 in all parts of who we are. This is not a three steps to prosperity and pain free living. Okay, it's not that at all. This is a supernatural what happens whenever God is a factor in my life. And the presence of God will enable me to dance when I ought not dance. When life has sucker punched me. Now, notice what he said there. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He gives us the what, he gives us the how, and he gives us the where. What's the what? The what is to rejoice. That's what we're to do. That's the attitude. That's the, the thing that just comes out of us. This is the ability to see things and rejoice and, and, and to have the right perspective on life. He gives us the how. In the Lord. This is the, the X factor, the Y factor. This is the fact that, that you have a relationship with God and because you have a relationship with God, 
in the Lord, you are able always, and again I say, to rejoice. You're able to do that. It's not a little happy pill. It's not a positive mental attitude. It's not having positive quotes thrown at you. It's not posting positive energy or finding some positive energy source out there. It is something that is spiritual. It is something that is internal. And it happens because the Lord is in you. And then he says this, and I just, just realizing this, that it's not going to be my outlook on life that I need to change. It's going to be my inlook that will change my outlook. It will be what is on the inside of me that will revolutionize the way I see what's going on outside of me. He tells us the where. Notice this in verse 5. He says this, Let your reasonableness, that's a strange word, right? To be known to everyone. What is reasonableness, okay? This is that attitude that comes before you. This is the attitude that people experience. This is the part of you that because you have the Lord in you, your, ex, your outlook changes because of the inlook that's happening inside of you. It's the work of God inside of you. Now, there's all kinds of different translations to this one word. In, 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 in the New King James Version, it uses the word gentleness. Let your gentleness be there. Uh, another one's graciousness. Another one is considerateness. So uh, being considerate. So the idea here is that the way I let the Spirit of God work out of me is that the people around me will see my reasonableness, my gentleness, my considerateness, if that's a word. The way that people will interact with me, they will see the difference inside of me. Here's a couple of verses just to jot them down real quickly. Proverbs 15 verse 1. The gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Are you a person who turns away wrath or stirs up wrath? Think about it. If the Spirit of God is in you, it will change your attitude. It will change your inlook. That will change your outlook. That will change how people even see you. Proverbs 25, 15. A gentle word can get through to the hard-headed. Proverbs 15, 18. Hot tempers start fights. A calm, cool spirit keeps the peace. See the difference between when a person has Christ in them, when God's presence is in them, it's going to taper them down. It's going to bring the attitude down. It's going to bring the way they see life and the way they see others and the way they deal with others. And here's one of the most powerful transforming elements here. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. He closes that little verse right there with just saying, hey, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And oh, by the way, the Lord is at hand. Isn't that just an odd statement? The Lord is at hand. Does that mean he's coming back again? Does that mean he's returning? It it can mean that, and it means that at times. But many believe, and I certainly am with them, that it means this, that when you are in that stressful, horrible, no good moment, you just have something as a believer, as a follower in Christ that no one else has, and that is that the Lord is is near. That's why when I read Psalm 23, it means a whole lot to me when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. And it gives me the assurance that whenever Jesus said he's going to go away, but I'm going to send my spirit to you and he will give you another helper that may be with you forever. 
See, I have something that the world doesn't have. I have something the world doesn't offer. I have something, and you can have something, and if you don't already have something, is that you have something. The Lord is at hand. He is with you through this time. It's the same thing he said in Matthew 28, 18, or 28, 20, when he said that, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's the blessed promise of being a child of God, is that the presence of God is with me. It's not that my name's just written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that's going to be future insurance for heaven. No, it's that the presence of God is with me so that whenever I do go through the storms, God is at hand. I'm not walking alone. I went back this week in preparing this message and listed out the most stressful seasons of my life. Now, I didn't magically stop at five. But I'm 48 years old, and I came up with five distinguishing, stressful, anxious. Not all of them were bad, but they were anxious moments, gripping. Some of them were very bad. Some of them were difficult seasons. And I want to tell you about them without telling you about them. There was a time when I had a lot of idols in my life. Idols of accomplishment and idols of relationships. And that was what I was living for. And it was almost like, I can almost point to a calendar when God knocked that idol or that idol fell and that idol fell and that idol fell. All of a sudden, all the things that I was living for were gone. Were gone. And I can remember... The carpet in my bedroom was green. That's a long time ago. My face was buried in that carpet and I was bawling like a baby because everything that I had been living for was gone. All the idols had fallen. But there was this beautiful moment with my eyes soaking in the carpet that God swept over me and said, I'm still here. I'm still here. There was this presence of God that he couldn't have been any more in the room if he was physically in the room, but that he was in that room in that moment that I knew the Lord was at hand. I can remember another time when I was scared out of my mind when everything in me and outside of me said, run home, get out. You are an idiot. You can't do this. And for the next seven years, that would be a voice that I would hear day in and day out, day in and day out. But it was every day that I had to get up and say, God, I still can't today and I couldn't yesterday, but you gave me enough strength yesterday to get through it. So would you give me another ounce, another dose of your strength today for seven years? In that moment, I got to see the power of God working in a frail human Then there was the 12-month period of silence. Whenever I thought God was going this direction, but ended up going this direction, 
For 12 months, I am like, okay, God, this doesn't make sense. This is the way it's supposed to work out. No, this is the way it is working out. So what, God, are you doing in this moment? What, God, are you doing? I didn't know it was going to be 12 months. I didn't know if it was going to be 12 years. I didn't know if you were going to figure it out in that period of time. I, I didn't know. It, I was living in this this quagmire of wondering and disillusionment and trying to figure out what path God was leading only to have God direct that back ultimately to this path that I knew that he was leading. But this is what God taught me in that season. Just wait, Mike. I've got it. I know this is not the path you thought it was going to take to get there. And he's telling me all this afterwards, okay? He's just saying, wait. Wait. Quit worrying and Wait. I can remember the time, I'll tell you about the, this one because it, you're a part of it. When we were starting Grace Point, I can remember being at my, we didn't have a house. We'd left a job. We'd left a career. We'd left what God had thought we'd called God to the rest of our life to come back to Northwest Arkansas to start a church. And we thought that this was the way it was going to be for the rest of our life. And, 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 uh, and we were going to live in Africa. And then all of a sudden now God has us back in America. And I can remember standing on their balcony the night before we started Grace Point Church, looking out into the darkness. Everyone else in the house had gone to sleep. I don't remember. It must have been 11 midnight or something. And I can remember standing on the balcony, looking out into the darkness, metaphorically and literally crying, saying, God, I don't know what's on the other side of this darkness, but I will go. Look around. You are on the other side of this darkness. But I didn't know you then. I didn't know we would be here then. So it's, it's not easy to go, okay, but that was then and this is now. No, 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 then it was darkness on the other side. It was unknown on the other side. But I experienced God as a provider. And then I can remember a time this is self-induced, that I fell God, I hurt people, and I crushed myself. And I was suicidal in thoughts and suicidal in plans. And shame enveloped me. It was in the moment one, one day, and I could, tell you, I could tell you where I was. I can remember the time of day it was. I can remember it was dusk. The sun was setting. And I can remember I could no longer stay inside the four walls. And I just went for a walk in a cold sweat and just walked and walked and walked and walked. And just listening to music, trying to flush out the negativity and the shame. And in that moment, the song came on that said, He's a good, good father. And rushing over me was the sense that, yes, yes, he is a good, good father. Past all of our brokenness, he's a good, good father. The Lord was near in those moments. Each one of those moments, God taught me something about himself. He also taught me something about me. Number two, prayers to God equip us to dance. 
The Lord is near, but if you realize the Lord is at hand and He is near, then we ought to do this, right? If you haven't memorized a verse all year, okay, it's June. Please help me. Tell me you haven't. You've read and memorized some verses since the first of the year. If you haven't, this is the verse of the year for you, okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, let's say it out loud together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, now I could break that verse down and spend an entire message on that, but I do not have time. But here's how you're going to memorize it this week. Monday, you're going to memorize, do not be anxious about anything. That's all you're going to memorize that day. You're going to memorize the rest of it. You're just going to memorize, do not be anxious about anything. Then the next day, you're going to get up on Tuesday morning and you're going to go to the next part. But in everything by prayer, but in everything by prayer, but in everything by prayer. And you're going to start driving that in because here's what we we have got to figure out is that we aren't God. And all the anxious thoughts and all the worries and all the anxiety, we're not going to be able to fix it all. And God will sometimes put more on us than we can handle so that we will drop to our knees and depend upon Him. Don't fret about anything. I love it. Pray about everything. Don't fret about it. Pray about it. Next time you're fretting about it and someone, you've got an accountability brother or sister in your life, you go up to them and you lovingly hug them and say, but how much time have you spent praying about it? And let's right now, let's drop and let's pray about it. Now, I know you can do more than pray, But you can't do more until you pray. A.J. Gordon said it like this. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Uh, Therapists have been using boxes as a cognitive behavior therapy with kids for a long time. Asking them, whenever you have a concern, whenever you have a worry, take it and put it in your little worry box. I want to challenge some of you today not to get a worry box, but to get a God box. And that that you would not take your worries and just put your worries in a worry box, but you would take your God concerns, God-sized issues, and you will take them. And you will write them and you will commit them to God. God, I can't. God, I can't bring my children back. God, I can't fix the the, the shortage of money. God, I I, I can't fix the illness in in my loved one's life. I, I, I can't. And God, I don't know what to do other than I'm going to not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything and I'm going to give it to you, God. And you're going to close the lid and you're going to walk away from it. You cannot go back and pull it back out. No, 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 because you gave it to God. It's in the God box. And you're going to leave it with God and you're going to believe that God is going to be in that situation. Will he answer it in one day or will it be seven years like it was in my life or 12 months like it was in that other situation? Well, I don't know when he's going to do it, but you're going to give it. Now, sometimes you may open it back up and bring it back out and give it back to him again. Keep giving it 
to him. I'll tell you a story. I heard this week of a, of a mother who had a daughter, and they were missionaries in Russia for a number of years, but they came back from, uh, from Russia and try to integrate back into Western culture, and their daughter just never got back in. Now, she was excited for Jesus, shared her faith on the mission field in Russia, but she, she couldn't somehow get past it here. And she, she didn't enter back into the American culture while she entered in, in a very rough spot in a very rough time of her life, and she didn't do so well and kind of fell apart to where she started doing drugs. She started drinking Drinking obsessively, drinking till she got drunk, drinking till she passed out when she got drunk. Her parents, they, they said, we grounded her all the time. Her senior year, they said she was grounded the entire senior year. She would be grounded and almost get out of grounding and then she would be grounded again. They would take things from her. They would discipline her. They, they took her to counseling. They did everything they could to fix her. They could not get the answer, the combination. She just kept slipping deeper, deeper, further away from their fingertips and they could not get her back. Finally, by the end of her journey, she was cutting herself. Her last party binge that she was on, she woke up from her soberness after being raped twice, by the way. Um, and she wrote obscenities with a razor blade on her arm to kill herself. And um, she wanted to end it all. Let me tell you the good news. She is alive and well and walking with the Lord today. But let me tell you about her mom. As you can imagine, as a mom, she worried every night, worried, sick, where's my daughter? Every time the phone would ring, she'd wonder if this is going to be the police, if this is going to be a, a mortician, if this is going to be a coroner, if this is going to be, who is this going to be on the other end of the line? And she finally was told about the God box. And she just had to take little Renee, as her name is, and put Renee in the God box. Said, I can't fix her, God. She's yours. And walk away. Went on for weeks and months without conversations with little Renee. But today, she's walking with the Lord. I say all that just to say, there comes a time when we can't, and the sooner we get there, the better, where we have to put our prayers and bring our anxieties to God and give them to Him. Close the box, walk away, and wait on God. Number three essential that we have that the world doesn't offer, none of this you'll find written in any psychology today literature, nothing you will find in this in some stress management class or course or extra credit. You'll not find any of this because all of these have an X factor, a God factor in them. God's presence enables us to dance. Prayer enables us to dance. And then also the peace of God enables us to dance. And this is something that, again, the world doesn't offer. It doesn't even comprehend the peace of God. But you can't can't get away from it. And let me just say this. Peace is not when all the circumstances out there get right. Peace is not the absence of war in the land. It's the absence of war in the inner man. 
And if you'll notice what he said in verse 7, he said, And the peace of God. Circle that phrase if you haven't already. And the peace of God, which surpasses. I can't explain it. I can't put it in a box. I can't, I can't limit it. It surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts. Oh, that's the seat of your emotions and your mind. I love it. It's your heart and your mind. And he will guard your heart and your mind. Now, then he goes on and he talks about all the things that we should be thinking about. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, whatever is excellence. And he goes on and on through that list. And now it comes to verse nine. And for the sake of time, I got to speed through this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and say it with me, the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. So the peace of God will guard you. The God of peace will be with you. This is something the world doesn't offer. This is something that you have because you have a relationship with God that you've got to tap into. One translation says it, that the peace will control the way. Listen, the way doesn't control the way. The peace will control the way. Where does the peace come from? The peace comes from God who is the peace, who is the answer, who is the X factor, who is the mystery sauce, who is the secret ingredient. And it changes and affects how we think and how we see things. 140 times the Bible talks about our minds, our minds. Watch over your minds, protect your minds, uh, redeem your minds. In Romans 12, 2, it says like this, let us, let God transform you in the new person by the changing of the way you think. God wants to alter our minds, our hearts, our lives for his good. This is why I've said uh, from the very beginning of this series, joy rises above our circumstances. It flows deeper than our pain. The only way that happens is if you have the peace of God given to you by the God of peace. Any other way is substitution and will not last. I close with a story of a great hymn writer, poet, Fanny Crosby or Francis Jane Crosby, known as Fanny Crosby. When she was six years old, she... Well, underwent a surgery that was, it was a, it was an accident. It was a mistake, but she lost her sight. Totally, totally caught the doctor off guard so much so that he stopped practicing optometry in that town. He stopped. So you would think this little Fanny would grow up to be a pretty indignant person, a pretty upset person, but no, there was something that she met in her relationship with God that fueled her joy and kept her full of peace and kept her writing. She wrote 8,000 songs. Her first poem was when she was a child. The last one was when she was 95. And this is one of them, probably one of the hidden ones of the 8,000. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot sing. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I can't, I cannot, nor I won't. Would you bow your heads with me?
during our response time, listen very carefully, during our response time all across the stage, there are little post-it notes. And some of you all are right now in the grips and the throes of such anxiety, fear, worry, that it is all consuming of you. And you say, I can't, but God can. I will not fret, but I will pray about everything. And I'm going to start right here and right now. And I'm going to invite you to do this. Get out of your seat in a few moments. Come to the front here. Grab one, grab two, grab three little pieces of paper. Go back, sit down, and just begin to write your prayer to God. Go home and find a box. Somebody told me after the first gathering, they're going to go home and find a really big box because they've got a lot of things that they're worried about. For you, it may be a shoebox in the top of the closet that nobody else will ever see the worries of your life. Whatever it takes, give it to the Lord. Experience the God of peace giving you the peace of God that this world cannot offer. Give it to God. Father God, you know our hearts. You know our minds. And we want you to transform them. We pray this in Jesus' name.